Hello everybody at MAFRA, uh, good to be back with you. Uh, I've been at Tamworth at the Country Music Festival where we, where we had a lovely time um, and uh, got involved with the Scripture Union outreach there, which was, uh, I think, most rewarding, but it's good to be back uh, in Gippsland in particular and, uh, and in MAFRA uh, today, and I'll see you again next week. But we're starting a new series today in uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. But before we do that, let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, you, you are uh, the maker of all that is, seen and unseen. Uh, you're the giver of life. Uh, you're the one who has revealed yourself by your word and uh, in your Son. And so we pray that as we read your word today and as we think about it, uh, we pray that you would uh, speak to us afresh, uh, that you would um, enliven our minds and uh, warm our hearts and uh, conform our wills and cause us to want to live lives that are worthy of your calling uh, as we seek to be obedient disciples of the Lord Jesus. And these things we pray in his name. Amen. Well, Genesis 1 verse 1. Uh, turn it up with me. Uh, hold, hold on to it there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a simple, elegant station, statement in uh, Hebrew. It's uh, seven words. Uh, it's memorable. William Dumbrell is a great Australian uh, Old Testament scholar. And in his commentary on these words, he says it's the greatest statement in the Bible. I'm not sure how you rate those things, but he's a man whose expertise is undoubted and his opinion at least, at least needs to be considered the greatest statement in the Bible. On Christmas Eve of 1968, December the 24th, the Apollo 8 spacecraft was the first manned mission to the moon and it entered uh, lunar orbit. They didn't land on the moon, but they entered the lunar orbit. And that evening, the astronauts, Commander Frank Borman, Command Module Pilot Jim Lovell and Lunar Module Pilot William Anders did a live television broadcast in which they showed pictures of the Earth and the moon as they saw them from the capsule that was orbiting the moon. And Lovell said the the vast loneliness is awe-inspiring and it makes you realise just what you have back there on earth. But then they ended their broadcast in this way. William Anders, the commander, said, for all the people on earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message we would like to send to you. Here's the message. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then each of the three crew members took it in turns to read through the first 10 verses of Genesis 1 from the King James Version of the Bible. Now, as a result, that broadcast from Apollo 8 won an Emmy Award for the, one of the most outstanding television achievements that year. Extraordinary. But there they were confronted with the vastness of space, doing something that hadn't been done before, looking back on their home planet, and the only words that seemed fitting were, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's not just the first sentence of the book of Genesis. It's the first sentence, obviously, of the first five books of the Bible, that grouping that we sometimes call the Pentateuch, which is the Greek way of saying five-part book. Um, the Jews used to call it the Torah or the law, the way of life. Uh, it, it's the first... We need to understand that Genesis is part of this five-book book collection 
But of course, it's the, the first verse of the whole Bible. And it's ever so important because it forms the foundation for everything that follows. Now, you'll notice there's nothing there about how God created. We're going to look more at the creation next week. Uh, today, I just want to think about this verse and some of its implications. Well, how did God create? We're given some information in Psalm 148 that Dave read earlier. Psalm 148, verse 5, uh, it instructs uh, the elements to, to praise God. Praise Him, sun, moon, shining stars, the highest heavens. They're all exhorted to join in praising God, doing what sun, moon, stars and highest heavens do, just being themselves. But then it goes on, it says, He commanded and they were created. How did God create? He spoke. He spoke and it was. Out of nothing came something because God commanded. Only God can create like that. But that statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, means that there's nothing that's not included in that. There's nothing in this whole created realm of the heavens and the earth that's not the product of his handiwork, of his command. And so thinking about those sorts of things in the New Testament, the Apostle James in his book, chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything good that you have comes from God. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul asks his readers in Corinth, and he asks us as well, he says, What do you have? that you did not receive. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There's nothing that you have that doesn't come ultimately from God and his goodness in giving. What do you have that you did not receive? Now what that means is this verse, the very first verse of the Bible, if you think about it, should call forth humility. Humans should realise that everything that we have is dependent. We are completely dependent on the one who gives good gifts. Now it's interesting as well that humility is a word which comes from a Latin root. So many of our English words have come to us from the Latin language. And a related word to humility is human. And both humility and human have roots in a Latin word humus which means earth. And we're going to see later on that humans were created from the earth. We're people of the earth. Therefore, we should be humble. It makes sense to have a humble posture towards God because he's the one who created everything. We are part of his creation. Therefore, he's greater than we are. He's given us all we have. Therefore, we owe everything we have to him. That should affect a humble posture in any thoughtful person. Now, I remember some years ago reading an interview with a musician who I particularly admired. His name's Mark O'Connor. He was uh, an extraordinarily gifted uh, musician on a range of different string instruments. And from a very early age, he was playing with adults and playing better than just about any of them. He was the world fiddle champion at 12. He won that five times straight, so they told him he couldn't play in that anymore. So he became the world guitar champion five times over. And, and then the mandolin champion. He's just a genius of a musician. He writes his own stuff. He plays better than just about anybody on, on the instruments that he plays. So this interviewer said, how do you, with all your talent, um, keep from being arrogant? And he said, you can't be arrogant when what you've got is a gift. He acknowledged that everything he had, now obviously he's worked really hard to develop it, 
but everything he has has been given to him. And that's the same with any of us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that's a statement which, of course, has been disputed, uh, particularly in, in more recent times than the Bible was written. Atheists will tell us, people who don't believe in God, atheist is a, is a Greek word as well, a means no, and theos is God, so atheists believe there is no God. Now, atheists would tell us you can't prove the existence of God. Now with what, that statement, yeah, Christians have to agree. Uh, we can't actually prove the existence of God in the way that we prove other things. The New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says it's by faith that we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So it's by faith that we acknowledge God. It's by faith that we acknowledge that God is the creator God who made something out of nothing. But faith doesn't mean making a leap into something that's completely irrational. Faith means trust in the face of evidence. So you weigh the evidence. And my question to anybody who says that, they, that there's no evidence for God or that you can't prove God is, well, what's the alternative? How else did we get here? How else did anything come into existence? Because you see, no one believes that matter or the universe is eternal. No one thinks that everything has just always been. And it, it came to what we've got now. No one believes that anymore. There probably was a time when people believed that, but not anymore. The universe as we know it had a starting point, it had an origin, it had a beginning. So how do people without any concept of God or who, who wish that God didn't exist or who say they've come to a, a belief that there is no God, how do they explain origins? Well, back in 1988, Newsweek magazine in America uh, ran an article called Where the Wild Things Are. And they asked leading cosmologists, people whose scientific speciality is the cosmos, they asked them for their explanation of how things came to be. So Alan Guth, who was the professor of physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, this is his explanation. He said, The universe, not with a bang, so much as a pfft, pfft however you say that, ballooned accidentally out of the endless void of eternity from stillness so deep that there was no there or then, only possibility. It began when an infinitely dense, infinitely hot point called a singularity spontaneously exploded about 15 billion years ago. So what was the origin of the universe? An infinitely hot point called a singularity and it spontaneously exploded. Alex Vilenkin a professor of physics and director of the Institute of Cosmology at Tufts University, Massachusetts, USA, was asked as well of the origins of the universe. He says, The universe as a young bubble had tunnelled like a metaphysical mole from somewhere else to arrive in space and time. That someplace else was nothing. Well, some years ago I was travelling and I was in an airport bookshop with Time to Kill and I found a book there that... Per uh, purported to be able to tell the origins of just about everything. So I turned to page one and it opened with this sentence, in the beginning there was nothing which exploded. Now, that's not science, that's poetry. They're trying to explain the inexplicable. My question to any of those people is, all right, so there was this 
point of this singularity, this point of immense energy and possibility, where did it come from? Where did the balloon, where did the mole that crept out of nothing come from? How does nothing become something? They have no explanation for that. They have to concede that there was a starting point. But how that starting point got there in the first place, they have no answer for. I think it's plausible to believe in God as being the ultimate starting point. God who has always existed. That's a much better explanation of something than those poetic attempts. Now, Charles Darwin was the author of the, uh, the book which has popularised uh, for many the idea of, uh, of uh, the origin of species and, the, and, and evolution and so on. But in his autobiography of 1876, he had these things to say. He said, The mystery of the beginning of all things is insoluble to us, and I, for one, must be content to remain an agnostic. So Darwin had no theory about how everything came into being. His theory concerned how species adapted and changed and evolved over a process of time but as to the ultimate origins of things he said I'm an agnostic I'm someone who doesn't know now the thing about any of those explanations that try to do away with God is atheism is a faith every bit as much as any belief in God denial of God can't be proven so they say you can't prove God but we could say to them but you can't disprove God Atheism is a philosophical starting point for whatever it is that they do believe. But there's another question then. Why is it that they don't believe? Is it because they don't want to believe? I found this um, channel on, the, on YouTube a few years ago called The One Minute Atheist. and uh, the, the One Minute Apologist, I'm sorry. And, and it said the best question to ask an atheist is if I could prove these things to you, would you believe? And in most cases, the answer will be no because they don't want to believe. Now, Aldous Huxley is a famous English author who uh, wrote the book Brave New World and a few others as well. But he was honest enough to say that there was something more to it um, than, than just logic in his deciding to become an atheist. In 1937, he wrote a book called Ends, of, Ends and Means. And in that book, he wrote this. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. I consequently assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he should not personally do as he wants to do. For myself, the philosophy of meaningless, meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. Aldous Huxley was not disinterested. He had a motive. He didn't want to believe in God because he thought it would set him free to live as he chose. I'm a Christian because I think belief in God is the best explanation of the facts that present themselves to me, including the fact of ultimate origin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, C.S. Lewis was a man who was once an atheist and who uh, was converted to belief first of all in God and then to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. In an article that he wrote uh, critiquing the whole idea of evolution as just this naturalistic process that had no divine originator, uh, he finished with these words. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun, as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, because by it, I see everything else. So Lewis believes in the sun because he can see it. But he says, by that light, 
I can see everything else. Well, this is a new series that we're embarking on now, uh, and over the next several weeks we'll be thinking about the first four chapters of Genesis, and God willing we'll come back and do more of it in uh, later times. I've never preached Genesis before. In fact, uh, one of the churches I've worked at, I was discouraged from even trying to. Um, the fellow I was working alongside there said to me one day that I, he doesn't preach it. He said, um, every couple of years I get a creation science guy in to keep the creationists happy. Now, I was a bit disappointed in that response, uh, but it's not very well formed as a, as a, as a thought um, because it assumes that Genesis is chiefly concerned with creation. Now, if you think about it, look at the book of, of Genesis as we will be doing. Only the first two chapters out of 50 deal with the facts of creation. But if you think of Genesis as being part of the Pentateuch or the Torah, these first five books, the books of Moses, only two out of 187 chapters of the whole of the Pentateuch are concerned with creation. The story of Genesis is concerned with much more than creation. Of course, it starts there, but that's the foundation for the bigger story that Genesis wants to tell. Now, one of the reasons that people shy away from preaching on Genesis is because it is controversial because of the nature of what science is saying it can say about the nature of life and where it came from and all those sorts of things. But if we're committed to, to teaching the whole of the scripture, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 talked about how he was innocent of the blood of the people he was speaking to because he said, I haven't failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So it's our goal in preaching at Mafra to, to preach the whole of the Bible as much as we have opportunity to. So we want to, to preach the whole counsel of God. We can't ignore Genesis, even if it's controversial. It is God's inspired word, and according to 2 Timothy 3.16, all of God's word is useful, it's profitable, it'll build us up as we engage with it. So we can't afford to ignore it. So we're going to get into Genesis right from the beginning because we won't understand the rest of the Bible if we don't get our bearings from the beginning. Any author, when they write a book, wants you to read the beginning, the introduction, so that you'll get a sense of where the rest of the book is going to go. The Bible's no different. We must come to grips with how the Bible begins if we're to understand the rest of it. So let's do it. Well, the title of the book, Genesis, that's our English title, and it comes from the name of the book that was given to it when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. Now, the, the, the word Genesis uh, means origin or source, the beginning of something. Um, the Hebrew title, when this was written in Hebrew, the, the original Hebrew title, Hebrew books just used, they just used to take the first few words of that particular book, and that was the title. So, the Hebrew title for this is literally in the beginning. And so we can say this, that the book of Genesis is a book of origins. It's a book of beginnings. Yes, it talks about the beginnings of everything that is, the universe, but it's the beginning of mankind. And it's the beginning of sin. And there's the hint of the beginning of the process of salvation. It's the beginning of the ancestors of the nation of Israel who were God's chosen people to bring his salvation to bear in the whole world. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. Now Gordon Wenham is a wonderful English commentator on, on, on Genesis and he says that um, the book of Genesis can be broken into three parts, each of them dealing with the origin of something. So chapter 1 gives us the origin of the universe. Chapters 2 to 11 tell us the origin of the nations. But chapters 12 to 50, by far the longest section of the book, 
tell us about the origins of the people of Israel. So the origins of the universe, the origins of nations, the origins of Israel. The subject of the book of Genesis is that God has a plan. By chapter 3, we'll see that the world has plummeted into sin because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, and that sin transmits itself to the whole creation. But God doesn't just destroy the world. God has a plan to rescue the world, which is first announced in Genesis 3.15 and made more explicit as the book develops. And so the subject of the book of Genesis, Andrew Reid, my first lecturer at Ridley College, and he's written a helpful little commentary on Genesis, and he actually called his commentary, Salvation Begins. What's Genesis about? It's about the beginning. It's about the origin of God's plan to save the world. Well, the author of the book, nowhere in Genesis or in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers or Deuteronomy does, does Moses claim to be the author, but Jewish tradition said Moses was the author of those five books and Jesus referred to Moses as being the author of these books, so we'll take his word as being definitive. Who was the author? It was Moses. Well, who was the audience? Who was it written for? It was written for Israel. But if it was written by Moses, that tells us something about when it was written. It was written either at the time of the Exodus or, or sometime later. It was written during the lifespan of, of Moses. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Now, if you know the story of Moses, he was uh, born a Hebrew uh, in Egypt because uh, the people of Israel found themselves in Egypt through a process that's described at the end of the book of Genesis. But um, Moses grew up in the, in the court of Pharaoh. He was an adopted child of, of Pharaoh's wife. Uh, but Moses was called by God to effect and to lead the rescue that God had in mind for his people in the event that we called the Exodus. So there he was out in the wilderness one day and he was confronted by a burning bush and a voice spoke to him from the bush and said, go back to Egypt, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses was a bit timid. And so he speaks to God, because that was the one who was speaking to him from the bush. Exodus 3, verses 13 to 14, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Maybe the book of Genesis was written around the time of the Exodus. Maybe it was written to answer the question of these recently released slaves. They'd lived all their lives in Egypt, and there are hundreds of gods in Egypt. They worshipped animals, they worshipped the star, they worshipped stars, they worshipped the sun, the moon, the whole lot. They used to think the Pharaoh was a god. And so a god who speaks to Moses out of the burning bush says, go back and tell your brothers and sisters over there that you're going to bring them out, they'll say, well, which God? And so Moses' answer is the God who speaks from fire, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the only God. The rest of these gods are idols. Maybe that's when the book was written, but certainly it was written to Israel and they needed to know which God it was that they'd been claimed by. But Moses finishes his writing career with the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy finds Israel poised on the edge of the promised land. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They've been taken through the wilderness over 40 years. They're about to enter the promised land. And they've been told that Moses is not going to make the journey with them because of sin. And so Deuteronomy is Moses' last will and testament, speaking to the people 
on the border of the land they were about to enter, but without him. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, Moses writes, For ask now of the days that are the past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. Now, of course, we've spoken of this before and we will speak of it again and in more detail in coming weeks. But when we hear the word Lord there and when we read it in capital letters, that's the, the great name of God, his personal name, Yahweh, the one who makes covenant with his people. And so Moses is speaking on behalf of Yahweh to these people and he writes Genesis on behalf of Yahweh to say the one who created the heavens and the earth. He's called by the general name God in chapter 1, but by chapter 2 of Genesis. We're told quite clearly that the creator is Yahweh, the one who chooses Israel to be his special people. And so as God created the heavens and the earth, so he's created a people, Israel, for his own purposes and glory. Flip over to Deuteronomy 32. Right at the end of the Pentateuch, as Moses addresses to the people on the border of the promised land are coming to an end. Deuteronomy 32, verses 6 to 9, he asks this question. Is he not, he means God, is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. Now in coming weeks we'll see that God separated the light from the darkness, the, the, the earth from the sea. In the same way that God separated those things, he separates his people. And so why was Genesis written? Genesis was written, Genesis was written to Israel to satisfy their curiosity about the nature of their God who has called them out of Egypt to be his own chosen people established in a land to live for his glory. Now in terms of interpreting it for us, we need to ask the question, what did it mean to them? What did it mean to the original audience? If we want to work out what Genesis is to mean to us in the 21st century, we need to ask why its author, God, through Moses, wrote these words for its initial audience, Israel, released from slavery, about to go in to live in the promised land, who needed to know the God that had chosen them and called them. Now there's some principles in the New Testament, I've got these on the outline so you'll be able to look these up at home, but these are some rock solid principles from the New Testament about how to interpret ancient writing. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15 verse 4, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So the Old Testament, that's what he's referring to, what we call the Old Testament, why was it written? It was written for our instruction. It was written to them, but for us, for our instruction, to enable us to endure as people of hope. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, the Apostle Paul again, he says, Now these things happened to them, and the these things he's describing 
of things that took place in the book of Numbers in the Pentateuch. Uh, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our, for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. There's a big biblical principle there. Interpreting the Bible, it was written to them for us. And so we need to work out why God wrote those things to them to help us work out the meaning for us. There's another principle in 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, Paul talks there and he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond what is written. In other words, take the scriptures as they are, don't diminish them, don't reduce them, don't cut bits out, but don't add to them. And we can add to the scriptures in all sorts of ways uh, by getting fanciful interpretations that weren't part of the original intention. So don't go beyond what's written. They're principles that will guide our looking at the book of Genesis. Now, a very helpful book for interpreting the Bible that I've found is one by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. It's uh, entitled How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And in their section on how to interpret these ancient books and, and bring their meaning into the, the present day, they say that to interpret any text, we need to work out what the author meant the original audience to understand. And that we could say it will never mean to us what it couldn't have meant to them. So our interpretation of the Bible requires that we dig in to the ancient world and work out what it was that the ancient Israelites would have made of these ancient texts. And once we've worked out what it meant to them, that will help us to apply it in our own context. Now it's probably fair to say that at the time of their release from captivity as slaves in Egypt or as they faced the prospect of going into the promised land that they had to conquer, scientific questions weren't on their mind. The ancient world didn't think in the sort of categories that, that our modern world does with all the advances that sciences have brought. So these scientific questions were of no concern to Israel. Genesis was written in language and in ideas and concepts that those ancient people understood. So we need to get to work on what that, those, those ideas were if we're to do, uh, get our meaning from it. Now, I, I don't propose to go into too much of the science of this at all. I'm simply not competent. I have no training in science. I quit science at year 10 just as quickly as, uh, as I could. I'm just not competent to go with those things. But I don't think you have to be to be able to teach or to understand Genesis. I don't think it's a scientific text in the way that we understand scientific texts. It's a theological text. It's about God. It's about God and his world and his intentions for the world. He said better than, than let me know, but I, I think this works out okay. But the statement that they had was where science and the Bible appear to be in conflict, one of them has been misunderstood. Where science and the Bible appear to be in conflict, one of them has been misunderstood. So as we look at Genesis, we're going to look at it as the foundation, not just of the Pentateuch, but as the whole Bible, giving us concepts that help us to understand what God's purposes for the world are, what his purposes for his people are, and what he's doing to rescue and reclaim a ruined creation plunged under the curse because of the fall of Adam and Eve. But I want to go back to where we began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They're the Bible's first words, but they're not the Bible's last words about creation. So creation's a theme that 
is developed at various places in the Bible, but in the New Testament it's given a particular new dimension. So in John chapter 1, we read these words. This is how John begins his account of the life of the Lord Jesus. And clearly, he has in mind the first verses of the whole Bible. So John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John wants us to know that Jesus was present in the beginning when the creation was created. And he says Jesus was present as the word. How did God speak? How did God create? He spoke. God said and it was. Uh, We read before from Psalm 148 which said God commanded. Jesus, says John, is the word of God, the instrument through which God created. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now the Apostle Paul takes up a similar theme in Colossians chapter 1. In verses 15 to 17, he says, he, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, according to Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Uh, By Jesus, all things were created. All things were created through him, and not just through him, but for him. The world we live in belongs to Jesus. Jesus, the word of God, the word who became flesh and dwelt among people, is the one for whom this world was made, and the one who will return to rule this world in perfect justice one day. But then the writer of the book of Hebrews Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So, complete agreement. John says it, Paul says it, the writer of Hebrews says it. Jesus is the one, by, as the word of God, who created the world. But Hebrews 11 Hebrews 1 verse 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the power of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the the one through whom the world was made. It was made for him, but he's the one who's keeping the world going. The, The whole universe is upheld by the word of his power. You are breathing, your heart is working. All of your bodily functions that are keeping you alive are ultimately sustained by Jesus, the word of God. Now I said as we began that that statement in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth tells us that we are completely dependent on God because he's the one who originated life. He's the one who gave us life. Therefore life's a gift. And like any gift, a sensible person would treasure it and would seek to honour the intentions of the one who gave it to them. Have you ever given a gift to someone and the gift was disregarded and dishonoured? It leaves a very bitter taste in your mouth. God is the ultimate source of life and the giver of life. We are the recipients. We are the dependent gift receivers. 
We need to honour the intentions of the one who gave us the gift in the first place. I can't remember which of my stories I've told you, but I'll tell you this one again, or perhaps for the first time. But I remember quite vividly a trip home I had on the train from Melbourne once. And um, somewhere between Melbourne and Druin, the train stopped, and it stopped for a long period of time. And so people looked, this is a long time ago, so people didn't have mobile phones, they were reading magazines or newspapers or whatever. But uh, the train stopped so long that people looked up from what they were reading and uh, commented briefly to the person next to them. And some of those brief comments turned into conversations. And one of them I couldn't help but hearing because it was played out directly opposite me. And so an older woman had two younger girls sitting next to her. And so after they'd commented on how long the, uh, the train was sitting there and so on, the woman said, and so what have you been up to today? And one of the girls said, oh, we've been to Melbourne shopping. And uh, the, woman, the older woman said, oh, what did you get? And so the younger one lifted up her shirt to reveal a recently pierced belly button. Uh, quite shamelessly, she lifted up the shirt. She said, I bought this. And so the older woman said, ooh, and looked a tiny bit surprised. It looked as though she didn't really know what to say. And so she did say something. She said, oh, what will your mother think? And the pierced one said, I don't care what she thinks. Well, the older woman was a bit taken aback by that too. And she said, oh, well, I suppose it's your body. And the younger pierced one said, it's not just my body, it's my life. Well, I filed that one away for future reference. And I'm telling you today because that there encompasses a whole approach to living that a lot of people have these days. It's my life. Well, it's not actually, because your life is a gift. And any sensible recipient of a gift will think about how they can honour the one who gave it to them. The Lord Jesus, the instrument through, the, the, the person through whom God created everything, the one who created everything, the one who who creation is for, the one who is sustaining it by the word of his power, the one who's coming back to rule the creation that he initiated. He's the giver. And we need to honour him and the intentions for which he created us. It's not our life. It's been given to us. And a sensible person will live it the way the giver has given. Humans are completely dependent on God, the creator, for all that we have. And God is still involved in his creation. So as we look at Genesis, we're going to be looking at it through that lens. The Genesis tells the story of the beginnings of everything. It's the foundation that shows us what God is up to in the world and shows us that God's plan is moving forward and will be completed at the return of his reigning son, the Lord Jesus, through whom and for whom everything was created. The proper response for every one of us is to cease from our it's my life rebellion and worship him and follow him and listen to him and trust in him now and forever with the life that he's given us. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, these are challenging words because deep down we really do want to live our own way uh, and yet we have to acknowledge that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift including life. We would not have life if you didn't give it to us. Our life would be nothing. It simply would come to an end if you didn't sustain us. Everything we have comes from you. So please help us to live lives of humility. 
lives of true dependence, lives of reverence and lives of wonder and worship and, and, and genuine love and faith as we live out the purposes that you've called us to uh, in this world that you've given us to enjoy and, and to, to make our way through. Uh, we pray that you would bless our studies in the book of Genesis and that they would deeply enrich our understanding of who you are, of who we are and what your purposes in this world are. And we pray that you would help us to grow together as Mafra Community Church, as people who want to be good uh, stewards of all that you've given us and good representatives of you, our great God and King in our community. Father, uh, please help us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll be back with you next week and I uh, look forward to continuing our series in Genesis then. See ya.